Purmagyanakimirandasya Gyananjana Salakaya Chakshurumiritam Yena Tasmai Shri Guruve Namaha Shri Guru Vashna Guru Paramparaki Yahatarinam Good evening everyone. Thank you for coming. Usually there's a topic for our talks, but this month there's no topic. Forgive me for that. So we've, we've come to a no, no topic talk <laughs> and, and kirtan. Any questions? <laughs> now, I'll say a few words shortly and... and uh, yeah, we can always speak about kirtan, but we could do kirtan also. That might be better. A friend of mine, a close friend of mine, once went to a uh, monastery of where a devotee was visiting, who was very famous for kirtan. And so he went with a tape recorder to record him. And so when he arrived there and he met him, and uh, he, and the, his elderly, the kirtanir, he said, what is that? He says, I came to record your kirtan. He said, that is not the teaching. <laughs> you chant, that is the teaching. But he did say, but if you want to hear, record something, come with me. Then he took him upstairs and sat him down in front of one of, one of my gurus, who later became one of my gurus, and said, whatever he says, you should record that. <laughs> So, short antidote. But um, I did want to say a few words about something. And I want to begin by reading from a book entitled Aesthetic Vedanta. It's a book that um, was written in maybe 1997 or something like that. It consists of three chapters an orientation to the nature of Lila, divine play, conceptual orientation to that, and then a translation and commentary on the Lila of Krishna, dancing with Radha and other milkmaidens. And third chapter, short book, three chapters, describes the, the sadhana, if you will, the, 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 the means for entering into that divine play. And in the beginning of that last chapter, which is entitled The Sacred Path, I want to read a short poem. So many poems in the book, some of them are translations, some of them are original poems. And um, I didn't write this poem for the book, but I decided to place it in the book. It at uh, this particular place. O rite and ritual, light to reality, what is your heart? The river runs freely, I bathe with regularity, the bell rings, all rise, for whom doth thou toll? Then rhyme and rhythm, the drum beats, and we are driven to dance and sing and abandon. What merry have you made, and why do I ask on? 
O rite and ritual, your performance habitual, when will we part the door between reality and see your heart of spontaneity? I thought to speak on the nature of ritual, which this poem speaks about, came to me in relation to the principal project that we are involved in at our monastery in Mendocino County, which is erecting a temple. Some of you are familiar with that project. Some of you have helped physically and financially and, and, uh, with uh, your enthusiasm and so forth. And we know that uh, some of you who aren't familiar that all of the monks living at our monastery harvested the wood and milled it and turned it into, into boards, beams, and put it together and so forth. So uh, it reached a certain point in the construction a couple of weeks back where the timber frame was finished. The frame is all made out of timbers and they're put together without nails and the Japanese style of joinery. And the fellow who helped us with the timber framing, who's a timber framing expert, had a habit, if you will, of conducting a ritual after completing any timber framing project that he was involved in. It was a European ritual. It's called the topping off party. <laughs> and so we decided to conduct that ritual in combination with other rituals. After all, we are no strangers to rituals in our lineage. Indeed, we began the temple with a ritual which involved a ritual that uh, established the deity, a deity in the foundation of the building. The deity's name is Ananta Sesha. Ananta means no end, and Sesha means end. So the, uh, <laughs> you figure it out. <laughs> That's the secret. Anyway, he goes in the foundation. He's, the idea is that he's at the, at the bottom of, at the bottom of everything that we can experience with our senses or think about in our minds and delude ourselves into thinking that we know because we've thought when true knowing begins, when thinking stops. At any rate, when we've thought it out and we've felt it out and smelled it and heard it and seen it and so forth, and we get to the bottom if we of our investigation as to what the nature of the material world is, we find it's it's here today and it's, it's gone tomorrow. All material manifestations have a beginning and, a, and an end. The world is in a constant state of transformation. But the idea is, at the bottom of this, at the end of that, when we come to the end of this kind of musical chairs, if you will, of material existence, where everything around us is changing, we have to be quick to, to move, it appears, because the changing nature of the world is such that it seems to be like musical chairs. If you don't move fast enough, you won't have one to sit on and you'll be out of the game. In other words, you have to keep moving because it appears 
in this plane of existence that at some point we may not exist and there's a struggle to exist. We have to make an effort. It appears that we're threatened by non-existence. So moving we are and in that movement we're becoming more and more entangled in the whole affair. So anyway, if we get to the to the bottom of this karmic, if you will, entanglement, this mirage that, that the world has meaning independent of consciousness, what we find underneath that is an, an unlimited world, an unending world. So he, he, the world of finality, if you will, of material forms and names rests on him. Hmm? That's the end. You come to the end of that, you come to him, and then enter into a world that has no limits. So a temple is supposed to facilitate the pursuit of such life without end. So, as I say in the beginning, we performed this ritual. Now at the time of the, the timber frame, we did this, another ritual, the topping off ritual. We kind of combined it with our own rituals in an interesting way. It was a, it was a wonderful evening. And everyone who participated in the project, all levels of construction and help that, that could come, came. And um, anyway, the, the topping off party has its origins, as I said, in Europe. And the idea was after they would build these timber frames, then they would hold a topping off party after you built your house and you encroached, if you will, into the sky a certain distance, then you held the topping off party and said to God, we're not going any further. <laughs> we're not going to encroach any further. We'll have our place here and and you can still have room above to preside over. So it had religious overtones as it, as it turned out. And so we, we conducted that ritual, involved a number of things, and, and we combined it with kirtan and, and so on and so forth. I spoke a few words, and our timber framer spoke a few words. And, and so with the completing of that, now we're, we're wrapping up the project in terms of how far we can go with it before the rain comes. We have another month or so, or six weeks. And we want to end that with another ritual that happens to uh, coincide with a wonderful day in the life of our deity. And so we don't do it often, but perhaps we will more as the temple manifest. We are inviting the public, some members of the public, not everyone, but some members. And. Um, so anyway, after my talk, if you're at all interested, you can leave your name somewhere with this, um, our friend here, Prem, Prem Bhakti, who erected the table with books and things. She'll notify you about it. It's actually the 22nd of October. The occasion is Go Puja and Go Bardhana Puja. It means cow worship. We have little cows there, miniature cows from India. And this, uh, it's the day of the, the, uh, the, the commemorating the myth and the meaning of the Mount Govardhan. Go means cow and Vardhan means to increase. The mountain that, in, that increases the, the, the livelihood of the cows, it means in the people who live with cows, cowherd people. You know, Krishna was, is a cowherd person. 
that's a big topic, but um, the kind of the idea is that cows are real amongst the animal species givers. As you may know, they live very inexpensively just by eating grass that grows on the side of the road. When I go sometimes to purchase feed for the cows and I ask for the best alfalfa, they say, oh, you don't need that for cows, they eat anything. As I know, but anyway, we, we have a certain relationship with them, so <laughs> we think a little differently. So at any rate, they, they live very, they live very um, at little expense to human society who caring for them gain immensely in comparison, um, principally from the milk, which most of us were raised on. And um, from that milk, of course, we make many things, yogurt and cheese and ghee and butter and so many things, being lacto-vegetarians as we are. And, um, and even the dung of the cow, the manure of the cow is, of course, very extremely useful. We use that to fertilize all of our organic gardens and so forth there. In so many ways the cow is living, forgiving to human society in comparison to what human society has to do to provide for them, so they're givers. The idea is that so those who give, who will take care of them? Because this is the idea of prem, love, that love is about giving and so giving though it does not involve attaching the idea of getting to your giving. But someone may question, if I only give, then who will, who will take care of me? So this is the idea. Who is taking care of the cows? His name is Gopal, that means protector of the cows. Krishna says, Yoga Jemam Vahami Aham. I'll take care of those people. We want to give and give to the center such that by giving everyone is benefited. I take care of them. I provide for them. They enter into the myth of my, my mythic world, a world that appears to be a bit of a fantasy to us who live in the mythic world of our minds. You know, good and bad. We think we know as if thinking made it so. All conceptions grow along the borderline. Joni Mitchell. So, up by thinking, will we know? Will we think so? And that's uh, that's uh, much of what yoga seeks to address. So, at any rate, this is the day we're having a celebration. There'll be kirtan, and there'll be kalpuja, and. Uh, sacred bathing ceremony for the deity and the harati or light ceremony and and Govardhan is, is is the mountain the cows needed to graze so the mountain provided all kinds of grazing facility and so forth provider so on this day this prashad food distributed widely to anyone and everyone and I'll be talking about this anyway story this Myth, as I say, that has so much meaning that it has the power amongst other stories, legends of Krishna, that they can dethrone the emperor of, of the mind that's ruling over us, hmm? cheating us, allow us, allowing us to be fooled into thinking that we know 
by its exercise, that we can know comprehensively by its exercise alone. That's not possible. Any more than we can, than we see because we have eyes, or we hear because we have ears. We do not know because we think. We are the seer, we are the hearer, we are the knower, and we are inhibited from knowing, from seeing, from hearing, by the faculties of our parasensual faculties, by our mental faculty. Hmm? Yoga is meant to, to master these faculties, if you will, to put them in their place so that the self can rise above them and, and know and be and experience all there is to experience. So in this connection, then, ritual is, um, uh, can be helpful. The yogic world is full of rituals. In our particular yoga tradition of bhakti, yoga of, of love, ritual is uh, also prominent. The temple is an example of, well, it's a place of, uh, it's a realm, if you will, a ritual. What is the realm of ritual? The realm of ritual is is a realm that is constituted of a combination, if you will, of the temporal and the eternal. It's a place that constitutes a, a meeting place, a, a ground between the enduring and non-enduring existence. So, we are from the land, in a sense, in terms of our material conditioning of the temporal. We identify ourselves with a particular country, which is hopefully changing, and it is changing. <laughs> the good for the bad, for the good for the bad, again and again. It can change names, for that matter. It can change uh, uh, ruling parties. It could change hands altogether. It was once... England, it was once identified by different native tribes or different names and so on and so forth. We call it the United States. And there may be other names for it <laughs> that other countries call it also. <laughs> so anyway, we have a national identity, we have a sexual identity, we have a racial identity and so forth. This is all part of the temporal. And we can bring our temporal identity in connection with that which is enduring, non-temporal, and real thereby. The idea being that if it doesn't endure, then it's ultimately not real. This is what the great Shankar reasoned, how he reasoned, that if it doesn't endure, then it's not ultimately real. Whereas that which endures that is reality. Therefore, consciousness is reality because it endures. You cannot deny it. Something like Descartes said, cogito ergo sum. I doubt, therefore I am. I think, therefore I am. So to be, one has to be, well, should be. To, 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 the consciousness cannot deny itself because very active denial is, requires consciousness. This is the idea. So. Underneath this ever-changing world in, in, in transformation is a, is a steady state, <laughs> and we are actually part of that. So, to so come in touch with that is really only possible in the fullest sense if that realm 
expresses itself in relation to us. If God wants us to know, we can know. Just like the mind, uh, we say, if the senses, if the eye wants to see an object, it can only see it if the mind minds it. Right? That's why you say, I never saw that before. <laughs> when we say, because you weren't paying attention. It's been here all the time because your mind was somewhere else. So even if your senses are in touch with a sensation from the world, with an object of the world which will produce a sensation, a sound, a sight, a smell, a taste, and we're not thinking about it, if our mind isn't connected, then we don't have the full experience. It doesn't register with us. So to be mindful, this is a good idea. So the yoga is for this, then. And in the same way that the mind, in terms of our present sense of self, is required in order for the senses to have any knowing power, perceiving power. Similarly, we, as a particle of consciousness, for our knowing in a comprehensive sense about our source, requires that the source exercise itself in relation to us, or pays attention to us. So if God wants us to know, we can know. I'll give it to you in a mathematic um, formula, if you will, poetically, at the same time. The equation is, how can the finite know the infinite? To know something means to understand it. To understand it means to bring it within your your grip. So how can the finite know the infinite? Mathematically, it's not possible. But it's possible. Math isn't everything. <laughs> That's the idea. Therefore, we are <laughs> rational, partly, but emotional, mostly. <laughs> we should be rational enough to put our emotions in put them in perspective, our feelings, and rational enough to find a proper place to repose our emotional self in, our capacity to give and love. Because if we give it in a, long, in a limited place, the result will be limited. If we can find the proper center to give of ourselves, God, then we found, so to speak, the root of the tree of existence. And by giving there, all the fruits and flowers will be nourished. The stomach of the person that the world is, if you will. If you put food in the stomach, then mystically the whole body is nourished. You can't put it anywhere else and get that effect. So we should be reasonable enough to reason out where we can give of ourself. Reasoning alone is not sufficient. But if we can reason where to give and then give appropriately to that center, then we can have comprehensive knowing. So, reason is limited. Therefore, by reason alone, we'll conclude it's not possible for the finite to know the infinite. But, then again, infinite is what? Infinite. Infinite what? Infinite everything. So this is the land of all possibilities. Impossible doesn't exist in the dictionary there. So if infinite wants the finite to know it, 
then what would be otherwise impossible becomes possible the very nature of infinite to contemplate the true nature of the infinite we can understand oh <laughs> well we should rely upon help from that side for going there if you want to come from a foreign land to from India to America it's hard for a village person to come to America you have to get a visa this country has to grant the visa to come So from that side, we have to get a gracious grant. This is the idea of bhakti. Bhaktiya sandhataya bhaktiya. Bhakti is not manufactured in the head. It's not made by the senses. It descends. The opportunity descends. It's grace. Grace comes to us. And it makes us disposed towards its own source. That we want to be like it and give. When it shares itself, when Godhead shares himself with us, then the attractive nature of sharing in the full sense comes within our experience. And then we are attracted to go in this way. So bhakti comes from, from that side to this side. So when God reaches out, if you will, expresses himself in relation to us, then there's possibility for us to know. And this realm of ritual is a kind of a meeting ground there. As I said, it's a meeting of the temporal with the non-temporal, combination kind of of the two. It looks temporal. Like I said, the, the temple, for example, we're building, it's a ritual to build it, and it's a realm of ritual in which so many rituals will be performed on a regular daily basis and so forth and so on. People will be invited to participate on various days and, and whatnot. On a daily basis, the monks are engaging in all types of ritualistic worship in the temple. But ostensibly, it just looks like a building made of redwood, like any other building. And it's here today and it will be gone tomorrow. But what goes on in that realm, if one conducts oneself according to the, the rules of the ritual, if you will, is that one's own experiences, that they move in the direction of, the, of, of that which is enduring. They move in the direction of themselves. They get experience of themselves above and beyond or beneath the mask of our material identity, what we are. So it's a, it's, it, it really is, it really is a, a meeting place between the temporal and the non-temporal. It looks temporal because we look at it through the limits of our senses and reason about it with the limits of our mind, unless our mind and senses are informed from above and we hear, oh, we should look at this building differently. We should conduct ourselves differently within this building. It's for this purpose and so forth. And, and you take your shoes off here and you turn left there and you bow down there. And all of the, you come inside of all these rules of ritual and so forth. They don't make a lot of sense to our senses and to our mind alone. They are the rules that govern the realm of, of ritual. And the language is symbolic and... Uh, and uh, there are different colors and scents and, and so forth. It all has underlying meaning and 
and what not. And if one conducts oneself within that realm of ritual, according to the rules that govern it, to that extent, then, as I say, it becomes a tremendous vehicle suitable for affording one experience of the self that they have little or no experience of previously. I mean, this is one example, one type of ritual, this type of ritual in the temple. The ritual has power. It's a meeting ground. Here in the poem, interestingly enough, what I wrote was, it's about getting beyond ritual. Your habits, habitual, is the idea. So, I want to go beyond it a little bit. But not in a way that you will hopefully come to think the realm of ritual and such can easily be dispensed with. Because there's something that it seeks to facilitate. It seeks to take us beyond itself, if you will. Beyond the symbolism, the symbolic language that it speaks to us, for example, in our tradition, about the drama, the play of God, Leela. Our ritual speaks to us about, symbolically, about Leela. Speaks to us who are in the realm of karma. Ritual seeks to help us move from karma to Leela. Another way to say it, from karma to prema. <laughs> because karma, the realm of karma, this is the realm of karma, of desire, that's binding. It's the realm of karma means work and Leela means play. So how to go from the realm of work to the realm of play? This is the idea. In the realm of karma we move in such a way that we become indebted. We move in such a way that we really go nowhere. It's like moving up the down escalator. You're making the steps, but you're not going up. Material progress is an oxymoron. <laughs> we go backwards. Material life proceeds through exploitation. We are under the rule of our mind and senses. They are imposing demands upon us. Because we've identified with them, we're serving them. And because we're serving the demands of our senses, we don't experience the fullness of ourself. So we feel empty, and we have to take. So we are on the take, and when you take, you owe. This is karma. There's no real happiness in it, from the broader perspective. Therefore, in Gita it says, Dukkha Yonaya Evate. The senses, in relation to the objects, are Dukkha Yonaya. Yonai means womb, that means they give birth to dukkha, to misery. It looked like happiness, but because such attachment to sense objects which don't endure, attachment to things that don't endure produces what? Misery when they're gone. <laughs> the more you like it, the worse it is. You can't keep it. This is material existence. So, we move away from that, from the realm of karma. Then to what? 
to the realm of Leela. Leela looks like karma. You've seen that, you hear the descriptions of Krishna and the, the stories of the, his interplay with gopis and cows and so many things and speaking Bhagavad Gita. And he says wonderful things, but in many respects it seems kind of ordinary also. The realm of Leela is, is, is like karma in appearance, but different in, in substance. Therefore, it's called Leela play. There's no debt there. It's all based, it's all fueled rather than by taking, it's fueled by giving. So how to get from taking to giving, how to get from karma to lila, how to get from karma, material desire, to prema, love. In love, there can be no interest in taking. Love is only about giving. So how to get there? So this realm of ritual is helpful, but it's a little bit at the same time we may hesitate or express some resistance to it because as I said you come in the temple take your shoes off put them over here bow here turn there say this <laughs> sit like that <laughs> there's all these rules it seems rather restrictive and after all then for that matter in rules there is no love in following the rule, there's no love. You're doing it because it should be done. There's duty, there's sacrifice, it should be done. I might rather do something else, but this is the right thing to do. So it's noble, but there's only a shadow of love there. As much as there is no uh, love in rules, there are no rules in love. <laughs> so, the realm of love is attractive to us. <laughs> we want to hear about that, but how to go there, we're not so interested in hearing about. Hmm? So, the, the idea of the realm of ritual is that there are rules of sorts, if you will. Yoga is, is, is I mean, it's really a ritualistic life to you. It at a certain time, sit in a certain posture and face in a particular direction at this time and so on and so forth. These rules are a particular kind of rules that help to foster what? They help to foster love in the sense that they foster doing away with what is not love, the taking that we are bent on, that we've been moving in the under the influence of the exploitation that our, that our life is, is driven by, exploitive disposition. They curb that appetite and very slightly also, they, 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 because they orient us in the right direction, those rules of ritual, we call it vaidhi, vidhi, vidhi means rule, vidhi bhakti, the bhakti governed by rules. There's not so much as a love in that, but it fosters a love by helping to do away with that which is not love and point us, pointing us in a direction through symbolic language and so forth of the realm of love, the realm of Leela. Uh, so, as one participates in these in this realm of ritual, as one even lives, begin to live in, in what's called ritual purity. We teach this in, in for the 
in monastic life, one becomes uh, a member of the realm of ritual, and every now and then a window opens to the world beyond, right? to the realm of love. Like we have our altar, we have our deity. It's like a, like a still picture in the drama of the life of the deity, the motion picture of the life of the deity. And by approaching the altar in the right way, with the right, following the rule and with the right consciousness, one can see, begin to see the movie, the drama, and go beyond the realm of ritual. Go to where the realm of ritual is meant to take us. This is a prayer, this poem, to ritual itself, that you might, by participating in you, as I have been habitually for a long time, that you might show me your heart and the door might part to that which you are representing in a symbolic way, partially, that the whole picture may become come within my purview. And I may go from the apparent spontaneity of material life, where I'm just doing my own thing, but really I'm just mind-ruled and sense-ruled and fooled into thinking, I'm doing what I want. You're bound by the neck and the hands behind your back and shackled, hmm? both legs to the wheel of karma, <laughs> going nowhere. Hmm? Become the president, become whatever, uh, big and powerful, uh, influential, or however we like. It's a bound and gagged life. It appears to be spontaneous. I'm doing what I want. But we haven't stopped to think what I am. Am I American? Man, woman, black or white? These things change. I'm a father. And I may be a husband. In the same life I may become a divorcee or a widow. What am I? I'm a daughter. I become a mother. You may become a son out of this life. That even happens. People change sexes. All these identities are just, like I say, here today and gone tomorrow. So the parent spontaneity of material life is really to be bound and gagged and tortured and unwilling to give up. <laughs> Unwilling to surrender. Uh. <laughs> no, I don't give up. We're being kicked when we're down. Material life is continually offering us a prospect that a full meal is about to come. And we're continually getting only appetizers <laughs> and only indigestion <laughs> from eating that. No full meal. It's not about to happen. It's a carrot only. It's a carrot. And like a jackass, we're moving, working hard for that carrot. For what? To maintain our material existence. And it will maintain itself. It has a life of its own. What about your life? So to move away from the illusion of spontaneity and come under some rules, 
not the oppression, if you will, of the mind in the sense, but the rules of ritual. They're friendly. After all, as I said, they've been expressed from the side of eternity in relation to us. It's a, it's a generous hand reaching out to us. How can we immediately go from here to there? We're like a wild animal. Can you just take a wild animal and let her, let her loose in the city? We are moving under the oppression of the mind and the senses. We're like a wild animal, worse than a wild animal, because we have intelligence, and we're using intelligence to foster exploitation, to better feed the, the demands of my mind and senses. This is not the proper use of intelligence, to reason how to enjoy my senses better. It means how to take more only. This is not the proper use of reason, to become a huge beast. You understand, the animals don't have that kind of intelligence, they're dangerous, but humans with intelligence who have no more interest than the animal, really, are the most dangerous species. I mean, animal, what it is being, let the tiger loose in the city, threaten a few people, but put the president in the bush, or bush in the presidency, and then what? <laughs> you, what do you have then? <laughs> and just, some of you may be Republicans, forgive me, but just an example. <laughs> so do we think that we will go from here, we just jump there, to the kindest place, to the most highest point of evolution, the kindest place, the realm of love, we're only giving, giving is fueling everything, we're here taking is fueling everything, we're going to just jump from here to there. There are similarities between the extreme left and the extreme right, extreme north and extreme south. There are similarities. There are similarities between the monkey living in the jungle and the sadhu. Sadhu, a saint who lives in the jungle. They're both vegetarians. They don't hardly wear any clothes. But monkeys are... <laughs> doing other things that sadhus aren't supposed to be doing in the forest. So, one is this, you know, the tamaguna and one is the sattvaguna. Two extremes. So, there are similarities, but they're different. So, between the realm, the realm of love and the realm of exploitation, the call of the wild, there are similarities, but they're not the same. Kama and prema are different as the full moon as I should say, as the full sun at noon and the dark moon night, like iron and gold, love and desire, material desire, are different, although they have similarities. Leela is moving. It's not just the stillness of moksha, of liberation, stillness that is relief from the frantic and wild movements of material existence that take us nowhere. To move from that to peace, that is in between, shanti, 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 to go from there to lila and love, that is another huge step. So for us to jump from here to there, no. We should hear about there, so we should want to go. And by analyzing the nature of the spontaneity there, we can understand that the apparent spontaneity here is just the opposite. So if we get good company, then we can need encouragement to, like I say, enter into the realm of ritualistic practice, sadhana, and so forth, whatever your particular 
tradition may be. In our tradition, it again, it is the, the ritual all represents symbolically the Leela, where which is God's play. We have the human play, the drama of human life, which is performed in our minds, and then God's play. God's play comes within the drama of our, of our lives, of our mind, to take us out, is the idea. So, with this, I wanted to say something about ritual and and the, and uh, how it, it's it's meant to foster beyond itself the freedom that we sense life must be about the unrestricted, free, natural flow, happy flow of life and love that we sense the world must be about. Not just knowledge, which ends in moksha, liberation, but love. So with that, I'll, I'll stop. I'll ask for any questions. I want to speak briefly. Some of you have come on a little long-winded. Try to stop a little shorter tonight. And then also again reiterate that if any of you would like to visit us at our monastery, on the 22nd of October, we'll be having a festival. The temple's not finished, but we'll do something there anyway. Any question, comment, or advice? Yes, sir. In pretty much all yoga, all forms of yoga, it's acknowledged that we are Brahman, or we are spirit, in essence. And then in the Shastras, it's described sometimes God is described as Parabrahman. I wonder if you can just discuss that just briefly. Um. I'm just pondering how to discuss it briefly. <laughs> it means this, that sometimes in scripture, like Upanishads, Upanishad, it means, literally it means, sit close. The implication is, if you sit close, I can tell you something secret. Come close. I want to tell you something secret. Something that's uncommon knowledge. The common knowledge is the knowledge that informs our material, the actions of our material life. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend. This is the common knowledge that we are busy gathering. But there's uncommon knowledge. And certain people who become tired of just eating, sleeping, mating, defending, and thinking there must be more to life than this. We're not satisfied with that. They have some eligibility to hear something secret. It means not the common knowledge. What is that then? This is the beginning of uncommon knowledge. It is that you don't need to eat, sleep, mate, and defend. You're not that body which needs to eat, sleep, mate, and defend itself. These are needs born of the body, and you've identified with the body, so you think you have those needs, but you don't. You're Brahman. Brahman means God, the Great One. Sounds ludicrous. You're confused, but you're God. <laughs> so, it is. But, got to start somewhere. You're going to talk to a crazy person, 
and try to make sense to them, you have to start somewhere. So, want to say something crazy? You're God. That's crazy. Hmm? But we're so crazy that <laughs> we might believe that. Your guru is very tricky. They hardly ever tell the truth. <laughs> After all, they're speaking with cheaters. <laughs> People <laughs> who are cheating themselves. <laughs> so you, when you talk to a politician, you have to become a politician. <laughs> you know, same principle. So Upanishads say, you're Brahman, you're God. It means to say this, if there is anything in this world that most closely resembles God, is you. Why? Because your consciousness, not matter. And God is of the nature of consciousness. Matters, but like the shadow, if you will, of God. So, as I say, you have to start somewhere. So sometimes scripture says, you are Brahman. The scripture wants you to know Brahman. It says, you are Brahman. Now that's going to be pretty attractive to us because we already thought we were pretty important <laughs> from a sensual point of view. We thought the world revolved around us, but we're having a hard time making a, convincing anybody else of that. Hmm? So here the scripture says, you're, you're Brahman. This is, uh, this is appealing. So it kind of gets us on board, and it's not completely untrue for that matter. I've given an example before. If a man lives in a cave his whole life, what will he know about sun? Nothing. If another man who lives in a cave goes outside the cave and experiences the sun, then he comes back in the cave, he wants to tell the man in the cave about the sun. Where will he begin? Sun is vegetation. Sun is rain. And heat and light at the same time. I mean, it's pretty confusing. You follow me? Sun is, you start to talk, it's a bright light that showers water everywhere. It shines everywhere. It waters everywhere. You understand? It makes the mind happy. This guy's depressed. He's living in a cave his whole life. You know? <laughs> can imagine. So, where do you begin? So you, you, it's very difficult. How are you going to talk to him about sun? So that we, what do you do? You poke a hole in the wall, and a ray of the sun comes through you. This is the sun. This is the sun. That's true, right? But it's not the whole story. This is the sun. The guy starts to get a grip on it. Wow, that's fascinating. It lights the cave. Hmm? And then you follow that beam. Eventually, he goes outside. He sees. Sun, his life, his world, and so on. But you can't tell everybody everything all at once. So, for spiritual children, it's spoken like this: "You are Brahman." That's uncommon knowledge, but it's really also, from a, another vantage point, common in as much as just the antithesis of material knowledge. So that's not such a big thing. When you go further, then you find that you're Brahman and you're not Brahman. You're Brahman and not Brahman at once. You are Brahman and you're not Brahman. This is really, you can't say that all at once, to the first, to the beginner. So, 
means there's Brahman, there's Parabrahman. If there's no distinction between Brahman and ourselves, while at the same time we are one, then there's no, you don't have an equation for love. In love, two become one, right? In love, two become one. But now think about that unity. It's a dynamic unity. The two never disappear. You and I become we. What is we? We is you and I. But I've accepted your mind and you've accepted my mind. Whatever makes you happy, that's my happiness. Whatever makes me happy, that's your happiness. So we want unity with God, but, a, but a, not a static unity, a dynamic unity. A static unity with God is a unity in which we identify wholly ourselves with Brahman. Without any further word, any nuance of that, not nuancing that. In other words, I lived in the plane of duality, of goods and bads, happies and sads. I transcended that. I became one with Brahman. I came to identify with the stuff that underlies the names and forms of the material world that like, like islands come out of oceans and go back down. I came to identify with the ocean, the water, Brahman. I'm of that stuff, consciousness. That's a st what I call a static unity. You forged a unity with the Absolute by doing away with the appearance of variety that was material existence. But a dynamic unity is one in which we go further. We've identified ourselves with Brahman. We've got knowledge now. We know the difference between what is enduring and what is not enduring. What's real and what's not real. This is knowledge. But where is the love? You've ended exploitation, moving in the world of taking, in the world realm of karma and so forth. So as much as you take away exploitation, in a sense you've moved in the direction of love, right? Because love has to be without it. You're no longer a taker, but how much are you giving? If there's no different, if there's no one to give to, where's the capacity for giving? So Vaishnavism, Bhakti school, speaks about non-duality, but it nuances that non-duality such that there's prospect for love and life, if you will, in transcendence, rather than the end of exploitation and stillness, alone, alone, alone. After all, one could reason, if you're happy and full, why move? People are moving because they have desire. So if they become fulfilled, they become still. But then again, there's a kind of movement that moves out of fullness, not out of necessity, but out of celebration. This is Leela. So Leela, divine play, this is, is movement. The Absolute is moving, dancing. Like Nietzsche said, you know, if there was a God, he'd be a dancer. He didn't study Indian philosophy. He would have found his God there. Krishna is a good dancer. Brahman, dancing, Krishna, with Shakti. Brahman with Shakti means 
Krishna's dancing. Why? To try to attract Radha. This is an esoteric uh, affair, but this is Leela. So in Leela, there, there's love. So in moksha, in liberation, there's ended exploitation and stillness. But if we go deep in that, through bhakti, when we find another kind of movement, another kind of a dynamic unity, where there's a sense of, there's a nuanced uh, the distinction between self and absolute. So Brahman and Parabrahman is the idea. So there's a possibility for Parasa, Rasovasa, Tarala said in Taitareya Upanishad, Brahman is Rasa. Rasovasa. Rasa means taste, exchange, love. So, does that help? It's a complicated answer, but it's, you know, it's a tough question. It requires some background. Any other thoughts, question? All right, so thank you very much. We'll stop there.